Welcome to the Off-Ramps podcast. I'm your host and co-founder of the Off-Ramp, Kristen. We know what it's like to feel helpless when faced with the magnitude of the world's problems. You want to do something about it, but don't know how or where to start. Well, that's why we're here. At the Off-Ramp, our goal is twofold. First, to keep you informed about the ongoings in immigration, migration, and global affairs. And second, to connect you with opportunities to make a real difference in the lives of forcibly displaced people both near and far. Practical and positive change is possible. Let's work together to make it happen. Hi everybody, I'm so excited to have you all here with us again virtually. Uh, I know these are extraordinary times, and I hope that all of you are healthy and safe and that your family members and those you loved are healthy and safe as well. Um, Today, we have two very special guests, but mom, who is also with us, is um, colleagues and good friends of theirs, and so I was actually going to ask you, mom, to introduce Mira and Sasha Shivanov. I think I said that right. Um, can you tell us a little bit about mom, your relationship and then introduce them for us? Sure. Well, gee, Mira and Sasha, I think we talked about this the last time we were together, but it's, uh, we've known each other a few years now. Um, we have served together as colleagues with the Cooperative Baptist uh, Fellowship. I actually met them before they began serving with CBF. We were at a meeting together. Um, and as they began telling me about some of what they're doing among refugees and immigrants in St. Louis, um, I, I, just, I just fell in, in awe of them. Over the years, as we've gotten to know each other, um, not only just following their ministry and the things that they're involved in, as we've gotten to know each other, um, I've realized a lot of what they have gone through has made them perfectly suited, not only for what they do, but for a deep and profound understanding of the people that they are working with. And then it was, um, I don't know, I don't remember, Mira, was it two years ago, three years ago, that Butch and I had the opportunity to go up to St. Louis and spend a few days with them. Um, Mira will remind everybody that I got things messed up. We were supposed to stay with them but I had booked us a hotel. She never lets me forget that. So I'm just gonna tell you that up front. Hospitality is one of their amazing uh, gifts and abilities. And um, not only did we enjoy three days of that, but just um, spending a lot of time um, observing what they do, participating in it, meeting some of the people um, that they do life with on a daily basis. Um, Mira and Sasha have great dreams for not only how this uh, work among immigrants in St. Louis will move forward, um, but they're also expanding it to Romani people um, and to bringing it back to some of the work that they did in Slovakia and back to their home, which they can tell you a lot more about all of that, but I'm very proud to introduce to you two of my finest colleagues, Mira and Sasha. So Mira and Sasha, that being the background, and Mira, you do not need to tell anybody now that I got things messed up. (laughs) You can skip that story. (laughs) But please tell our folks a little bit about who you are, 
where you're from and what you're doing now in St. Louis. Uh, I am Mira Zivanov. Uh, I am originally from Serbia and I came in 2004 in St. Louis to serve among the refugees uh, from Bosnia mainly, which is like 75,000 Bosnians, Bosnians here in St. Louis, but actually we spread our serving not only with Bosnians, we serve everybody else that needs help here in St. Louis. And uh, obviously I'm Sasha. Uh, yeah, we, we, came, we came in 2004. We moved to St. Louis to, to serve as a missionaries with the Kirkwood Baptist Church and a couple other churches. And the uh, main goal was to help them uh, with the settling to the new, new country and to being able to, to share the gospel with them. So you are both displaced persons yourself. Can you tell us about your journey from your home country, why you left, how you got here, maybe even a little bit about what it was like to be here in those first few months or, or years? Well, we are, we are kind of uh, um, two examples of the possible immigration a way to come into the United States. Uh, Mira came as a normal immigrant. Uh, she came to join the family and I came as a refugee. And those two are different, uh, different ways to come. It, it's a completely different uh, way how you, uh, how you do your paperwork and how you do your application and why you are actually coming to the United States. In Mira's case, she came because uh, her family was already here and they applied for her to move and start life in the United, St United States. In my case, it was a different. I was forced to move out from my country and uh, became a refugee uh, because of the war. And then uh, after spending seven years in, in Serbia, uh, we have found out that there's, uh, that we actually have a chance to move to the United State, States and that's what we took. How did you guys meet? And did you meet in Serbia or did you meet here? We met in Serbia. Um, we basically kind of like was passing each other on a street where my uh, house was, but we also had a church that time in my house. And then we heard about the refugee family came from Bosnia in our neighborhood. So it's a church we offer some help to them. So we went over there, we invited them to come over to take some food and clothing, whatever we had in our church to offer up. And uh, we told them about our church. We told them about the prayer meetings that we had daily. We invited them to come next day, you know, and 
to listen the gospel. So we didn't want to push a lot, you know, but we just said, you know, what we do. And if they willing to come, they'll be good, you know. The next day they came. Uh, they, they, that first time they came in the front and they said, we won't accept Jesus. So we pray for them. And they continue coming like daily. But Sasha was a little bit suspicious about what's going on with this church. Yeah. Who is behind that church? Is it some bad people? What's going on? Why my family is very happy. They are coming home singing and uh, mostly dancing, you know. And uh, he was kind of, you know, curious why they are so happy. We lost everything, you know, and they are happy. uh, that curiosity actually uh, drew Sasha to come in church and, and see what's going on. And uh, uh, basically, we didn't have a chance to know each other a lot because uh, I was already in a process for my uh, visa for America because uh, I applied for my uh, green card in 1990 and because war started in former Yugoslavia uh, they moved the U.S. Embassy out of Yugoslavia so they lost my paperwork so I waited from 1990 till 1996 six years I waited for my green card to be approved during that time I was working in the church and that actually happened that I met Sasha and in that time when he started coming in the church uh we basically knew each other for probably six seven months and then i got approved for america so i moved to america and we continue our relationship through mails through phone calls uh and then something happened in my house that needs to be fixed so I was the only one being able that time to go back to Serbia and do that. Okay. Uh, so, now, Mira, Mira, this is one story you need to tell. You need to say, what did you have to go back and fix? Yeah. <laughs> An electrical pole, right? It was electrical pole. <laughs> she paid me to cut the electrical pole so you can tell it So basically, I spent only six months in America to go again back to Serbia, Sasha proposed since, since I came over there and we decided to get married. So I came in, in June in 1997, we got married in August 1997. And then the trouble starts when we wanted to apply for Sasha's uh, uh, green card uh, because he was a refugee status and then we went in the U.S. Embassy. They told us like, okay, you guys, since Sasha is a refugee, you need to go and apply uh, like a refugee. So we went back over there and they told Sasha, oh no, your wife, she's green card holder. She, you should go back to U.S. Embassy and apply to your wife's paperwork. So we went back again in U.S. Embassy and they said, no, 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 they're wrong. You should go back to IOM, which is um, Immigration. International Organization for Immigration. So Sasha went back over there and he said, you know what? I'm not going out from this room. You need to listen to me. I need to apply like a refugee. So he applied and along with and then four years later, I got the visa. 
So Mira, it took you six years to get paperwork and Sasha, it took you four years? Yes. Yes. So in, the, in those four years, were you able to see each other? Mira, did you travel well, back and forth? Uh, yes, I was traveling a lot from uh, Serbia to America just to renew my green card because if I wanna to be American citizen, I'm, I can only stay like six months out of America. And then I was like following that, you know, every six months I will go back and forward from Serbia to America. Uh, I mean, that time uh, we had also Philip on Sasha's paperwork. So when Sasha went on our first interview, uh, they told us like... Uh, Philip, Philip is their son. Yes, Philip is our son, now 22, but he was six when we came in America. So basically they told Sasha, you can go in America, but your son cannot go. We're going to take off your son from your visa. So we said, oh, I mean, that's not possible. We will not go without our son, you know. And they said, your wife should go back to America and apply for your son. So I went back to America. I applied for Philip. And uh, Sasha came in 2002 in December in uh, America by himself. And me and Philip was still in Serbia for two more years waiting for Philip to be approved for the green card. Uh, when Sasha came uh, in New Jersey, uh, his caseworker that was working on Sasha's paperwork, uh, she told Sasha, okay, you have right to bring somebody in the first year of your coming in America, uh, your uh, immediate relative. Yeah. Uh, so we said, okay, our son has a trouble. We're still waiting for his visa and we are separated. Like, And she said, okay, we're going to apply for your son and then he's going to be approved for like six months was the process that time. But actually even that didn't go for six months. That actually ended up like a year that we waited. For uh, Philip's yeah. green card, well, it was almost two years. Yeah. yeah. So, well, we were not. We we were we got married in in two thousand seven, and initially initially we wanted to stay and and serve because we start. We, I started serving as a associate pastor in the church, and then um, because of the the. The things that were brewing on on Kosovo and Metokia, I I knew that war another war is coming, and I just didn't want to stay again for a third war in in the country. So I applied for for uh, as a refugee in 1998, and that should have been a year process, but next year in March 1999 uh, there was a sanction over Serbia and then bombing and Kosovo problem and all that. So so we stayed we stayed from nineteen ninety seven through two thousand two in Serbia and then I moved first and then uh, almost two years later Mira and Philip came after getting Philip getting her his visa. It sounds like to me there was a lot of fear and uncertainty um, and sort of a loss of control, right? Like you, when you're waiting on this paperwork and you don't know how long it's going to take, 
and they're trying to tell you that, you know, they're not going to approve your son. And I mean, that to me just sounds really scary. Do you feel like that kind of fear and uncertainty is common among people who are displaced? Um, and, and what do you hear from other people who have, who have um, come to the U.S. as refugees? Is, is that kind of delay and confusion and um, uncertainty common? In some cases, it is, uh, but it's mostly it's not, and it really depends which which side you're coming from. In my case, I'm I, I'm a Serb, so I was in Serbian army, and the Serbian army was a little bit different in in the war, and so uh, there was a normal expectation that they're gonna treat us a little bit more. Uh, uh, carefully, and they they did the the IOM and the U.S. embassy didn't want to import some somebody. They didn't want to let somebody come to the United States who was involved with the with the war crimes. And so that that's the one thing. So they they needed to be a little bit more strict to us. But it, usually the process was six to eight months. The only problem with, with what happened really is that that thing when they blackmailed me with the fillet and they basically told me that either I'm gonna go by myself or go nobody else. And that was the, and they made me to choose either to take him out of my application or, or stay in Serbia. And so that's what I did, I choose to to come. What kind of impact did this journey and sort of the, the separation have on your family, both your extended family as well as your, you know, your close relationship between the two of you and, and your son? What impact did all of this have? All three of us had a, I mean, there was an impact, emotional and, and uh, physical and um, in my case, I mean, when I, I'm, I came to the United States in 2002, and I was not able to go back through uh, May 2004. And so when I went back, uh, I mean, I was happy and all that. And, the, uh, and I know they were happy, and so I'm, I, I arrived and I entered the yard and uh, Mia was already on airport and so she welcomed me. And, but our son was home and he was, uh, the home is two stories. On the second, the second story there was, a, that, that was the living space and the first floor was the, where the church were congregating. And so he was, he was standing on a, on a, on a window and looking down. And so when I, when I came, I mean, I can see him, he, he was just walking back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And he would look at me and then he would go back and look at me. And so, I mean, I just climbed the stairs and grabbed him and, and kind of we talked and, and that's when he told me. He told me, I thought you were dead. And I, I asked him, 
how do you, how, why would you think that? And he said, because, I mean, he couldn't explain, but he, and I asked him, we talk, we talk over the phone, we talk almost every day. And it was something that in his mind, you know, mm -hmm. made the... Uh, There's so many, so many uncertainties for displaced people. Um, you know, like you all have gone through, you know, who can go, when can you go, what about Philip? And, and certainly uh, children of people who are on this journey, you know, they have trouble interpreting. What, what are some of the uncertainties that you think are common to all people who are displaced? You all work among immigrants, sorry. <laughs> you all work among immigrants and refugees there um, in St. Louis. And one of the things I've noticed about you over the years is you're really able to sympathize and empathize. Um, and I think it must be because you have some commonalities. What are some common fears or some common uncertainties for people who are engaging with refugees in any city? What are some of the things they might see and experience? Well, the, the problem is the one of, one of the, the biggest fear is the, the actual process. And so you can, uh, when you apply for the, for the immigrant visa as a refugee, uh, you have to follow the certain rules that is different than the normal visa process. And so everything is arranged by, by uh, United Nations and the agency that works on that is the International Organization for Migration or IOM. And so you you are you would have a you would they will assign the case manager that you need to meet. They will make appointments and you know they, they will ask you all sorts of, I mean she was not asked the questions when you were, what were you asked when you were applying for visa? Yeah. Nothing. I mean, I needed to give my whole history in that time. I mean, where I was born, where did I go to school, uh, how old I was when the war, war started. Did I like it? Like I an was, interrogation, right? It was. It was. I mean, they go through all of these details. And what you say that day, when you come to the citizenship, those will be the same question that they will ask you. And you didn't, I mean, I didn't have, I had no idea, of, you know. But they, that's how they kind of uh, uh, try to um, see who is genuinely a refugee and who wants to move to the United States and who is just a, well, and because I know you, uh, Mira and Sasha, Sasha, I know that you had, because of the war, gone through already a lot of, a lot of trauma and um, a lot of things that were, um, were harrowing and scary. So I'm sure this just added to it. Is this type of fear, this type of trauma common to most refugees, common to those who would be coming to us? Well, it is. I mean, it's it. We we, we all kind of have this um, uh, 
missing the wall. Cautious, caution. I mean, it, it, it really take, takes a little bit slower to adjust to the and the um, to the new country. Uh, there's a lot of things we think that when somebody tell us something or raises a little bit more voice that this is kind of offense or you know it's and and you know the short we we get com completely different you know view of all this situation and and the uh, and there's always that fear that you might be uh, sent back back where you're coming from mm. and in a way in a way for refugees that that's much easier than uh, basically if you break the law you if i break back. Yeah, if i'm yes. a crime if i'm uh if i made the criminal offense i would most likely be kicked out and so we understand the reasons that compelled you all to 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 come to the united states mira you already had family here, um, you know, being together and, and um, being a part of that, that social support system was very important, obviously. Um, and then, of course, the two of you together and, and Sasha, for you to be able to leave a place that had been war-torn and come to a place of, of peace and security. What are some of the other reasons that you see people um, leaving their homes and, and trying to go someplace else? What are other reasons that refugees and immigrants might come to the United States? It's a better life. I mean, some of them was forced to leave their homes, even they didn't want it. Uh, on uh, 7 March, we celebrated Women's Day. And uh, since I wanted to put the question about cultural shock, so what was for them cultural shock when they moved to United States and by listening their stories um, you can tell that they are still longing for their country they still uh, kind of sorry that they are not anymore in in their country that they uh, uh, kind of they are forced to be here but on the other hand they are very grateful that finally they're on a site where they can count on peace and you know you have a better life you have much better sources here in america but also you have some kind of uh, stability and and peace um, that if they go back they're still not sure if, if it's gonna still be peace over there or it's gonna happen again you know so this is some kind of um security for them here in America, to be in America. I'm curious, uh, because if I understand correctly, Philip has lived here most of his life now. Is that right? Yep. Um, I, I don't know that a lot of our listeners would be familiar with the term third culture kid. Um, so I'll, I'll introduce it briefly. For those of you who don't know, um, second generation immigrants or child of refugees or even um, military children of military families uh, any children who uh or any child who grew up in a situation where they lived in a country primarily that was different from the country of origin of their parents 
they essentially lived a cross-cultural life even at home is a third culture child, a third culture kid. They've created their own third culture at a very small, not nearly as traumatic way. I am a third culture kid. My brother is as well. We grew up overseas, but we had American parents. We spoke multiple languages, but none of them perfectly. It was this weird mishmash of cultures that my brother and I embodied. Speaking to what I'm sure is your um, homesickness for Serbia, but also your son's sort of third culture and his comfort level here. How do you, does he understand your love of your home country? Does he share in that? Um, and how has that made maybe your relationship um, richer or more challenging or both? What is it like to raise a third culture kid when you're experiencing homesickness as well as gratitude for being here? Well, it, I mean, he's a he's an American kid, so that's the biggest problem. <laughs> so, yeah, it, uh, if if we, well, this is our plan. We're gonna take him over, and then we're gonna go come back with the, his passport, and let him live for a year, and then maybe he will. Get a, does he to, to does he know this plan? Does he know oh, this plan? No, oh, no, no, no. So, so he can't listen to this episode. Okay. This is the but that that's the one of the ideas that we have. So I don't know. Well, I, you know, do. I really I understand that there was uh there was a lot of things that as as our children grew up overseas and we realized there were so many things about being an American that they didn't understand. But we were able to come back regularly. We were able to give them a taste of what it was like uh, to be American. And so for somebody um, that doesn't have that opportunity, the, the challenges of helping your child understand your culture um, must sometimes be a little bit overwhelming. It is. I mean, it's, it's kind of uh, with Philip kind of, find his own fourth culture way. I mean, he's, he, in all this, he was actually thinking about moving to Asia. So go figure that, that one. And most of his friends are actually from, from Vietnam, from Korea, from, and it, I understand that's because of, he find a group that have a common, uh, common things and common uh, things that they love and experiences and all that. But for us, this this part is kind of uh, hard to understand. I mean, I can I can understand that he is not connected to the to the Serbia or Bosnia or whatever in Europe. But now you are looking for a completely different continent <laughs> and you're looking so you ne you never know how that that's gonna turn gonna with some of the people that you're working with do you see the same sorts of challenges they they come to america they're trying to adjust but at the same time they're raising children who are multicultural um the folks that you work with on a regular basis what are some of the challenges you see for them mira i know that you and i have talked about 
for example, girls' education and the difference that culture makes there and um, what's expected sometimes. Can you address some of the things that you see along those lines in raising children here in the United States? I can hear a lot of people complaining now. For, I will take example, Bosnian families complaining about their kids being 100% Americans right now. And uh, some of the Bosnian's family, uh, they would like to keep um, Bosnian language still be spoken in, in their homes, but youngest generation, they, they are losing that because uh, they're in school, they get jobs, they get married, um, they will have their kids and they will speak their language. I mean, the, the language that they are using here, you know, but then we have uh, Roma families from Bosnia that kind of also trying to do the same thing uh, in one way, you know, they, they want their kids to speak Bosnians, but also Gypsy language in their homes, which is kind of uh, a little bit harder on them, because if you have kids uh speaking two languages in home that's gonna make hard for them in school because you will have a problem with spelling and reading and that's you know why we have a lot of issue with roma kids here in st louis because they cannot keep english clear and uh they cannot do very good spelling in school just because they wanted to keep three languages in the home, English, Bosnian, and Gypsy language. So real quick, I want to jump back to Philip wanting to live in Asia, because as someone who has fantasized about living somewhere entirely different, basically my whole life, I won't speak for him, but for me, you feel not 100% here in the states because you didn't grow up here and there's i mean like i joke that there's basically a 15-year gap of any pop culture knowledge like my husband will reference an 80s movie and i like don't understand because i was in the west african desert at the time like it so i don't feel fully american but then i grew up in all kinds of different places where i never totally belonged so then the best choice is just to go somewhere where people, even just from a visual perspective, know instantly that you don't belong. And then you don't have to try to fit in at all. It just, you know, it's all bets are off. You can be in the new place. Everybody knows you're not from there. You don't have to pretend anymore. It's, it's a lot less pressure, I think, in many ways. Um, so I kind of do understand why he's attracted by to that. Um, I'm, I had another question and now it has, it's lost me. I felt very strongly about supporting Philip and his decision. Um, give me just a second. Let me pull this back together. Uh, so mom keeps, here it is. So mom keeps referencing your work. And I feel like we've touched on it just a little bit here and there, but it, at no point have you really said, okay, you work, you work for CBF, which is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. You work with refugees in the St. Louis area. How do you work with them? What do you help them with? How, how do you, what are the, your, those relationships like? What is your work? Work with the, 
we we started with the basic things. We started with the with the food and the shelter and the uh, the clothing, and it was just the providing these basic needs through food pantry and through um, the the furniture pickup and delivery and all that. And being being Christian organization and being mission. There was always that idea, that, that hope that we'll be able to present the gospel. To so talk a little bit about why we do this and uh, uh, who is our, who's our motivation. And it will always go back to the Christ, to Jesus. And it's, uh, and when, when I came first time, for example, uh, Kirkwood Baptist Church started a food pantry in 2003. And by the my arrival, they were forced to close it because they didn't understand the the the, the, the people's group that they're going to be working with, and the instead of like the Christmas uh, time, they they wanted to make the big celebration and big outreach to the people and give them blast them with a lot of things. And in my own, my own personal experience, that was never a good idea. And, but they, they tried, and they tried their own best. And so they, they were forced to close. And so, because of the fight, I mean, the fight broke when they were giving the gifts out. And so, and when I came, uh, they asked me to figure out how to run the food pantry and the best way where we can help the people and give them uh, necessary, fill, uh, help them with the necessary needs for food and for the for the clothing, for the applications, for the and so it it was always the mission was, was always based on the need. So wherever the need is. We 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 go there and we try to address it, and so that's that's the that is the uh, main motive in, in even today's work. Um, and we we started tutoring program about six years ago. Yeah. The mayor can tell you more about that. It was a need, and she recognized that and she initiated it. And now this is the sixth year that we're running. Yeah, it's an amazing operation. I remember when Butch and I were there and we were able to see how well you had organized and not only the volunteers and the people who packaged the food, but the trucks coming in with the food and then organizing the folks who come and wait. Uh, I'm sure it, it was it was a wonderful gift for you to be able to come in and understand the culture in such a way that you can take what was turning into chaos and bring some organization to it so that people could have the food and the resources that they needed. Um, and yet at the same time, keeping it a place of calm and peace um, so, so that the work could get done, which I, I think is probably one of the greatest gifts, the fact that you do understand the culture. Um, we come in sometimes when we're trying to help and we come in with a, a Western American mindset and that's not always the best thing, is it? It doesn't always, work right. 
um, Mira, I saw that today on Facebook, actually, you posted something about the food pantry um, and some things now that are ha happening because of the virus and things, um, and you were very excited. Can you tell us what happened today that made the food pantry an extra special gift to the, to the refugees at this time? Before we didn't pay attention how much food we will get because we always had a lots and lots of food and uh, still we have a source to get uh, uh, canned goods or dry goods, whatever, but in today's situation when almost every store is empty, you cannot find that much food. Uh, last week actually Two Saturdays ago, we was thinking about what we're gonna do. Are we gonna close for some time food pantry or are we gonna still be open? And since we have all, basically all volunteers canceled, they, they don't wanna come to be in danger, basically. So we didn't wanna put anybody in danger, even people who are coming for the food. So we was thinking, but, by the time last week, we got so many calls, people was asking for the food. And we said, okay, even if we open, we, we don't have a lot to offer. We don't, we don't have a lot of food in, in our storage. So we said, okay, we're gonna make a call. We're gonna let you know time. So Sasha separated groups of 10 people in a group every 15 minutes to show up just to come and pick up the food. And then we went Friday evening uh, with uh, two other from our Kirkwood Baptist Church, four of us went in, in uh, Friday evening uh, in, in, in our food pantry. So we started filling the bags uh, with uh, some only dry and canned goods. And then I asked, is it truck gonna go in a local store in the morning? And they said, yes, we have a, um, a guy from Kirkwood Baptist Church, he's going to go with his son to pick up some, if he had some food to be picked up. So we didn't hope we will get a lot of food in the store. But then next morning, Saturday morning, we went in a food pantry and we started, you know, kind of cleaning up and uh, preparing uh, some uh, frozen food that we had in a freezer to put a little bit with this dry goods. And then uh, the guy called from the, from the truck that was driving truck and he said, you guys be ready, we have a lot of food. I said, what? It's only four of us, how are we going to do it? Said, but, you know, basically we was able to pack all that stuff in, in the bags and uh, the bags was full food. We got... Uh, oh, that's uh, awesome. We got already made it food. We got uh, so many vegetables, a lot of bananas, and uh, we got so many donuts. I mean, <laughs> up donuts in every bag. And That's exciting. That's the exciting. Was so happy. They was blessing us. We was blessing them when they was going through to pick up their their bags. It was kind of it was a miracle. And I said, Darla, that's a miracle. I mean. Even before, we didn't even pay attention how much we get on Saturdays because we didn't care because we had food. Uh, yeah, but times know, are different now during all they, of this you know, crisis. It's, it's different. And, you know, that was so great to see, you know, and, and people were so happy. And they said, are you guys going to be open next Saturday? So they said, okay, we probably will be open next Saturday because they That's are counting on us. 
So I think you're bringing up something also very unique that during this time of crisis for all of us, when things are difficult, um, it can be it can be even more of a crisis for our refugee friends and, and neighbors. So thank you for doing that, Mira. That was such a great story when I saw it on social media. You also mentioned tutoring. Um, tell me, why is tutoring something that is necessary for, um, and something that is helpful for children of immigrants and refugees? We started tutoring program because when we was visiting some of the families, Roma families, uh, the kids will run to us with the homework in their hands and they will say, can you please help us out? We need to finish homework and we don't know how to do it. So by that time we kind of started, you know, looking for possibilities. What are we going to do? I mean, we cannot just go in somebody else's home and, you know, help some families. Then we realized they probably are not the only family in need. And then we talked to the parents and they said, we don't know how to help them. There is no chance we can help them out. We don't know any English. We struggle with English. We struggle with spelling, reading. We, we don't know uh, the, the, like, basically they cannot help. So we talk with local churches and we ask about the volunteers to come and help us out. And that's how we actually started, you know, we, we gathered the group of the volunteers and then we uh, scheduled time to start tutoring. And that time we only had once weekly for two or three years. But then since we started growing and uh, uh, we start getting more and more kids every year, now we have a group of 18 kids. So we needed to separate the smaller, younger group from the older group because they cannot get along each other so uh but also was easier for us because our space is not that big to cover all that kids in one place at once so we decided to have on, on a tuesday 11 kids and, and uh, seven kids on thursday and we saw that this is very very good thing to do because uh kind of you know you know you like like you like to help them out but uh, again by, uh, by the way how we are helping them, we are teaching those kids that, uh, for example, there is uh, Roma families and they have a cultural thing that their girls are getting married very young and they are not finishing school. So we wanted those girls actually to finish schools, uh, to go on a college, to, choose their way of life to choose what they're gonna do in future not to get married 14 15. they they kind of need something else they need to have their salaries in their hands not to depend on somebody else you know to give them money and uh, that's how actually we started you know kind of encouraging uh, young girls to go and finish the school and go on a college and uh, uh, look in the future in a bright way um, and actually we have that you know it's happening we have a girl that she's in a nursing school right now and um, she still sometimes need help but she's very good and she's 
she show us, you know, that actually they can do it. They, they can actually succeed in, in, in some of the things that, that actually they need. So we're, we're coming up on an hour here and I, I try to keep us right around that mark. And um, in that same vein though, in my, one of my last questions is usually um, where you find the hope in all of this. I mean, in what you do, you see a lot of despair, a lot of hunger, like very human needs, but where do you find the hope? And, um, and maybe even if you have a story or two to share about specific cases like this young um, nurse who really has succeeded in, in building a life for herself, what other stories of hope have you encountered? Our hope is one of the one of the biggest hope is that actually the the things that were done in a, in a, in this ministry that will be served as as a, a model that can be copied not necessarily copied that that can be adopted to that, that each person can uh, see that we can if we want to even if we come from some other country we can do the, the we can make a change and that that's the i'm i'm saying that because the that's what we last saturday at the food pantry when most of the food pantries were closed and they closed because of the coronavirus and it's it's real deal i mean it's it's kind of a scary thing but we find a way to hopefully on a safe way to still help the people and all that and the i called the guy i called what we do we decided to make the appointment so the we collected names and phone numbers and we'll call and set up the appointment where they can come and pick up the food in a certain time there's no congregating you just need to come and pick it pick the food up and give us enough time to prepare that food for you and i i explained the guy on the phone and and he said i wish or or we can do something like this that we just kind of find a way to do it and to help each other and it, for me that was a that was a testimony and that that's my that's my hope that we can by our deeds we can influence other to do the the better thing i'm not saying that all the, all of the things that we do is a good thing but some of these things are some of the the things that we do serve as the as the good thing so i guess and how can people find out more about you about what you do and how can they support you or how could they perhaps get involved in their own uh communities in similar ways um how can people get in touch with you well there's a there's a uh couple of different ways the the first one is through cbf.net uh, where we have uh, our own uh, like everybody 
all of us field personnel have, uh, they can find us under the mission, I guess, field personnel, and we'll be last one. So they can find out a little bit more about us. And the, we have a Facebook page, uh, International Fellowship. They can uh, see what, what is done and... Uh, in terms of practical things that people can do in their own community, what are the what advice would you have? Someone who looks at what you're doing and is inspired and wants to help, what would you where would you have them start? Well, there's in a, every community there's so many places where you can plug in. That that's that's the my uh, uh, first advice is if you if you are willing to do the, the food pantry, find a place where you can do it and you know you can do it. If that's the thing that it, it's interesting you in that moment, that's the way you want to help. If, if, it's, if it's the tutoring, that's the way you want to go, you can find a place in your community and the, uh, and uh, there's a you can help with the financial, you know, if you know somebody that, that you the does things and you you don't have that uh, time or you know you can you can help with fin financially, you know, and, uh, prayer is the the one of the best things that you can do. So there's many ways. And is there anything that we have left out that you want our listeners to know about you or refugees living in the U.S. or how they can help? Anything that we haven't covered? I mean, I can just give advice. If you want to work with refugees, you just need to make them uh, feel welcome here and how are you going to do it? You become a friend with them. You open the door of your home and hospitality is the biggest welcoming thing for, for, uh, for the refugees who are coming in America. If you show them that your home is open, not right now in this situation, but in any other case, uh, they like to build a trust and trust is built by your uh, daily uh, uh, friendship with them, uh, daily uh, life with them, you know, kind of like uh, we, we invited so many of them in our home and they, they invite us in their home. So that's how actually they, they start trusting me and Sasha. Uh, then they open up and they told us, all their burdens, uh, their, their needs. Uh, uh, so this is the way how you help them. Otherwise, if they don't trust you, they will not tell you what they need is. So they, this is actually, hospitality is something that it's helping and that we all need to do. Mom, anything for you that we haven't covered? Anything you wanna say about Sasha and Mira before we close out? I don't think so, except that's a cute little friend you have there, Mira, and I don't remember that friend. I remember the kitty cats. 
Oh, this is new edition. You're gonna meet Georgia when you come. <laughs> he's a cutie. <laughs> yes, he's spoiled. Very spoiled. Well, uh, we have a lot of spoiled dogs in our extended family, so no judgment here. Um, I'm so grateful to you guys for giving us your time, but mostly for giving so many others of your time and resources. And um, I, I'm inspired and am appreciative and hope that by sharing your story, we can inspire many others. So thank you for, for being here. Well, thank you too. For thank you, Vera. Thank, thank you, Sasha. Thanks for listening to the Off Ramps podcast. If you were inspired to act during this conversation, you can find us and learn more at theofframp.org or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Helplessness and hopelessness do not have to define your future or the world's. Become a change maker today.